So where do we where do we start? Yeah. Pardon? Where 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 are we gonna start? Well, let's start at the very beginning. And when I say at the very beginning, I mean the top, the very tip top uh, of the Dhamma. And then we'll unpack it. Uh, there is a sutta where the Buddha said that he only teaches one thing. Both formally and now, I teach only one thing. And that is Dukkha Dukkha Naroda. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people, they misunderstand that. Okay. They, they misunderstand it completely. What they think that it means is dukkha, 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 more dukkha, let's look at dukkha, let's suffer in dukkha, let's really get a good look at dukkha, and maybe someday I'll be out of dukkha. But that's not what it means at all. Well, no, dukkha, dukkha naroda means to see the dukkha right now uh -huh. and come out of it right now. Okay. Okay. And that the more often you do that, the better at it you'll get. And so when we say see the dukkha, that means we have to actually look to see. And an, an easy way to talk about it is the cost-benefit. In business, they do a cost-benefit analysis. Most people don't do a cost-benefit analysis. They just go according to the way that they've been doing it without actually investigating much of anything. Uh -huh. But the entire teachings of the Buddha is basically to see what you're doing, see that it's, um, uh, let us say, unsatisfying, unsatis uh, dissatisfying, and unsatisfactory. And so we make a change right then and there. Okay. Okay? Yeah. The and so you could say Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda is uh, turn that frown upside down mm. into a smile. Mm -hmm. Now, that does not mean that you have to wear a frown for 25 years before you eventually turn it to a smile. It means that you can turn that frown upside down right now. Mm-hmm. That's one of the most important qualities of the teaching. In fact, you, have you heard, what did the Buddha call himself? He did not call himself the Buddha. Tathagata. Tathagata. Exactly right. What does that word mean? Well, I've read that it means those gone, the one those gone. And wow, I'm impressed. Right, thus gone one. What does that mean? Well, those gone, those gone from suffering, for instance. No, no, the word tata, uh, uh, tata uh -huh. actually is the Pali word for right here, right now, this present moment. And so in modern times, you'll have uh, Ram Das writing a book called Be Here Now, or uh, Eckhart Tolle saying, this present moment, and they're talking about the Tathagatha, the Buddha, in the sense of let's be here now. So he's which the one, means, go ahead. He's the one that's gone in the present moment or something like that. Right. The word thus huh. is really poorly translated. It's like somebody came out of the basement of the Catholic Church to come up with that word. But the word, actually, a better one would be this, in the sense of this here, right here, right now, this present moment. That's what the word Tathagatha means. It means the one who has come to the moment. Oh, okay. Okay. Thus gone one, the one goes, where does he go? He goes to here, now. Which means that he's sought someplace else. Where's someplace else to be or some other time in the means of in the past, in the in the future, um, in uh, someplace else. Like uh, we're talking Dhamma right here, but people think, oh, I got to go to the Wat. So the Wat's someplace else. No, we need to be here now. 
This is what the word Tathagatha means, and that's how we look at the teaching of the Buddha in the sense of Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. So an easy example would be um, that the farmer uh, is going to go visit his cows, and all of the cows are collected together in a herd way on the other side of the pasture. And his intention is to walk across the pasture to get to the cows. All right? Does he watch and keep his eye on cows and where the cows are to get to them? Maybe. If he does, he will be covered knee deep in uh, <laughs> cow pies. Mm. No, he's got to watch every step because yeah. he's in the pasture where the cows are and there's a lot of cow yeah. pies. So you have to watch where you're stepping. Even if you were wearing uh, uh, big boots, uh, rubber boots or uh, uh, hip waders even, you still don't want to just willy-nilly step in cow pies. Mm -hmm. You want to watch your step. Okay? Mm -hmm. Now if you recognize that whatever pasture that you have in your mind and whatever cows you keep in the pasture of your mind, you still need to watch what you're doing every step of the way to avoid the cow pie, to don't step in it. There it is, step around it. Don't step in that, okay? That's precisely Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. Mm -hmm. See the cow pie and don't step on it. Mm -hmm. One step at a time. Every mind moment is a new step and we have to watch where we're going Every minute. If you can understand that as a basic concept of the teaching of the Buddha, now we can unpack the Four Noble Truths because the Four Noble Truths are exactly just an extension of Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda in the sense that the first Noble Truth is there is Dukkha. It exists. Those cow pies are there. Okay? And the, the cow pie is only a... Uh, interesting to us if we step on it. So mm -hmm. what is the source of the suffering is not the back end of the cow. The source of the suffering is the ignorance of not watching where I'm going. Mm -hmm. yeah. Not yeah. watching where I'm going. That's the ignorance. And the ignorance then is the second noble truth. And that's the primary thing. I know a lot of teachers will say that the source of, or the cause or the reason for suffering is tanha, or grasping, or wanting things. But no, if we are wise in our wanting, then our wise wanting will not be dukkha. Mm -hmm. It's the ignorant wanting that is dukkha. Mm -hmm. In other words, you can want to get to the other side of that pasture, but you still need to look where you're going, or you're going to be up to your hips in cow pie. Mm -hmm. But if you go for what you want, but you do it wisely, then you can reach your destination safely. This is an important quality of what is the cause of suffering. They say lopa moha dosa, which means uh, greed or wanting things. And basically we can go so far because there's actually in the classical definition of dukkha, Aside from old age, sickness, and death, lamentation, grief, and despair, the next item on the list, the big one, is uh, wanting something that you don't have. So wise wanting would be wanting things that you do have or wanting things that you can have and you can get them easily. Wanting things that you don't have or wanting things that are very difficult to get, that's suffering. Because you're doing without. Mm -hmm. That yeah, but even even the things that that you can get easily, if you crave them, like in um. Well, that craving then is pretty ignorant, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Most and when we really want something, then we're not interested in seeing it re in reality. We're just interested in the fact that we feel bad because we don't have it. We're incomplete. Mm -hmm. Whatever it is that we want fits right in. And when we don't have it yet, that means there's a hole for it to fit in. Mm. 
All right, we're not complete, we're not whole, we don't have what we need, and when I get what I want, that will make me whole again, right? But it doesn't. When we get it, we still don't feel any better. So that that kind of grasping and clinging and wanting, if it's ignorant, then even if we get what we want, it's not fulfilling. And the same thing is true with not liking. Not liking is uh, uh, is useful when it's wise. But when it's ignorant, that means that we're critical and we go around judging this and judging that, destroying our own paradise. Because mm. the paradise is great. Everything about it is great. The only thing that's wrong with paradise is the things that I don't like about it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And if I and if I don't like a whole lot of stuff, that means that I'm destroying paradise mentally. Yeah, that's that's totally true. Okay. So these are the first two uh, two truths. The third noble truth, nobody spends much time with at all, but yet it's the most important. And that is, if, there, if we are going to have Dukkha and then Dukkha Naroda, we need to know when it's Dukkha Naroda. Mm-hmm. Am I free from suffering right now? So I do a little inventory. Yeah, I'm good to go. Everything is great. I'm all right now. I don't have any problems. I don't have any suffering until I can think of something to suffer over. Mm-hmm. But if I don't think of anything to suffer over, then I'm not suffering. Mm-hmm. And so practicing that third noble truth, practicing getting in a state that is not dukkha. Now, there's a Pali word. The Pali word is sukha. The word sukha we'll be using quite a lot. The word sukha is actually the direct opposite of dukkha. We know that it's the direct opposite in in the Pali, even though there may be some questions, but we know that it's an opposite in the Thai language because Thai language is a living language today, and they have Duke and Suk. I also know that in the Gujarati language, they have Duki and Suki, and they're direct opposites of each other. So it would be natural for us to understand that in the Pali, Sukha is actually being free from Dukkha. And yet, in the English language translations, they translate that as sensual pleasure. And it's not, but it's not sensual pleasure, but it is just pleasure in the sense of no pain. Uh And we'll talk a lot about this. But sukha is the opposite of dukkha. And we need to find a way where we are free from dukkha where we are, in fact, satisfied. This is a major way of practicing the Dhamma, is by getting ourselves into the state of this third noble truth, the state where everything is okay. No problems, no suffering, no dissatisfactions, everything's okay. Now, this third noble truth where everything is okay as it, as it is and we see it's okay, seems to be way, way far away from the Western idea of uh, Buddhism in the sense of enlightenment. How can just be satisfied and okay, how can that be enlightenment? Well, because it's, it's the thing, it's happiness. Well, let's look at it this way. If I am absolutely satisfied with what I have now and I don't want anything, then I don't want enlightenment. I don't want it. I'm good to go without it. Now I can come across somebody who says that they're enlightened, but they got that way because they wanted enlightened, and now they want other stuff too, and they're not satisfied. So there's a kind of enlightenment that's actually not satisfying, and there's a kind of satisfaction that's not enlightenment. Which do you think the Buddha taught? The second one. Sukha. Sukha, yeah. Freedom from suffering. All right, and so I think that this idea of enlightenment is a very Western mentality or ideal because it's based in 
uh, Western culture that has had a lot of religious influence of exalted positions, God's high in the air, Jesus is way up there too, oh, you've got the saints, and so the Buddha must be way up there too. No, the Buddha's sitting right here, just happy as a peach, doesn't want to go up there in the air. <laughs> okay, so this is what we mean by the third noble truth. The third noble truth, freedom from suffering, does not mean enlightenment or special. That in fact, anything that's special can lose its specialness, and therefore it's subject to dukkha. But if you're satisfied then everything is satisfying and everything is satisfactory. Everything is good to go. Mm -hmm. Now, how can we get that? Maybe. The fourth noble truth. There is a method. There is a practice. There is a procedure. And yet in the English language, it's called a path. Now, the, the whole idea or the concept of a path normally is a, uh, a trail, a road, a highway to get from this destination to this destination. And that there is a time lag between being here and getting there. That's the path. That's what the word path means. A method or a way to get from here to there. But the Eightfold Noble Path should not be thought of as a path. It should be thought of as a method. And that method is the method that we use. Let us say like this. How do you unlock a locked door? By unlocking it. You put the key in, you turn the key, and the door opens yeah. immediately. Uh -huh. You don't have to break in. No. No. Okay. Yes. So the whole key is the method to just turn the key. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or and almost like turning a light switch. Uh huh. From the dark, the dukkha, into the light, satisfying. Mm hmm And so there's a way of doing this. Let's now let's look at this key, this method. This Eightfold Noble Method, this Eightfold Noble Key. That in fact, there's a joke about that. And that is, is that the, uh, the, the, the student uh, wanted enlightenment. So he goes uh, to Asia. He finds out about this guru on top of this high mountain. And so he climbs and he climbs and he finally gets up to the top of the mountain where the guru is sitting. And he bows and pays respects. And then he says, oh, please, Mr. Guru, give me the key to the universe. And the old guru says, I don't have a key to the universe. In fact, I don't think that anybody has a key to the universe. The, the key to the universe is no place to be around, to find. Then he says, but the universe has been left unlocked. Mm. <laughs> All right. So that's another way of thinking that the way to unlock the locked door of Dukkha is to get the key and turn the lock. Because any locks that are there are already inside your own mind. The actual universe is good to go. Sometimes we use the word world. And I, am, I almost always define it to use it. Because there's two ways that we use the word world. The way that it's normally used here is in the sense of human culture. The way that the humans deal with each other in all the various aspects, that's the world. And then there's another kind of world, and that is the planet Earth. That's the world. Well, the planet Earth is good to go. With or without humans, the planet Earth is just fine as a paradise all by itself. No problem with that world. 
the problem with the world is everybody's ideas conflicting and fighting with each other and you learned that behavior when you were a child mm -hmm. and so you locked up your own mind and so how are we going to get that unlocked well there's basically four elements out of the eight that we need to really pay close attention to four elements are actually the components of the key and how to use the key to unlock and then the rest of the Eightfold Noble Path is the results of having unlocked the door. Okay, what do I mean by that is, is that you probably heard of uh, right noble concentration, Sama Area Samati. Okay, we're really using the word Samati here wrongly when we use the word concentration. Samadhi does not mean concentration. It means unification. Uh -huh. It means bringing all of the elements together. Okay. Mm -hmm. a, a clear example of that is the Western American uh, Indian teepee. Do you know what a teepee is? You've seen one? Okay. You know that the teepee has a number of poles uh, as few as three. Most of them have eight or ten. Some of big ones will have 12 poles. And then they're all put together in a certain structure, and then they're wrapped with animal furs and skins and all of that kind of stuff to make an enclosure. But the ridge poles is the structural element. Well, guess what? All of those poles collect at a certain point close to the top where they're all tied together. That's the samati. Uh -huh. The Samati point is where all of the ridge poles are collected together. Many buildings in Asia and many buildings like uh, uh, the Capitol building will have a Samati or a one point that's the high point for that building. Can also be referred to as a gable. A gable is a Samati. Mm -hmm. It's where things come together at a top point. All right, and it gives power. It's like the uh, in you know about an arch, and then there's a keystone at the very, very top of the arch. And when that keystone is put into place, then that means that the weight can be evenly distributed. You take that keystone out, and the arch will fall apart. Hmm. Uh, I, I I don't know what you are. What do you mean about when you say an arch? Uh, you don't know an arch. No. Okay. The arch is used in uh, mostly old architecture, but we use it a lot in modern architecture for very, very big things. An example would be a bridge that you will see the arch that goes like that, and then they'll put the bridge or the roadway through that arch. Okay or uh, 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 even a small bridge will have it, and that gives the ability to suspend the weight across the river. Okay, yeah. All right, and that many cathedrals are built that way. There's an arch. The whole building is an arch. Okay. Just like, just like yeah. the teepee is an arch. Uh-huh. And that arch then has that top point. That top point is the samati. Okay, and what we're meaning now by the word samati is where everything that's needed is collected together. And when everything is collected together, that makes unification, that makes things strong. Now, when the mind is unified, that, that's the same thing as saying that we're not a crowd anymore. I want this, I want that. I like this over here, I like that over there. And so we divide ourselves up. Another way that we're divided and not um, uh, having a unified mind is when there is doubt. Maybe it's this, maybe it's that. Maybe I have to choose this, wait a minute, it might be that over there. And so we become a crowd. Another way that we don't have unification of mind is when we tell a lie, because we're separating ourselves from the truth. No unity there. So when someone has a unified mind, that means that they deal with honesty. They deal with things in certainty without any doubt and confusion. 
So, if in fact uh, this unification of mind also means that now that we're complete and now that we're whole, we don't want anything, we're not lacking anything, we don't want anything. If you don't want anything, guess what? You're not likely to go out and try to steal it, kill somebody to take it. And so our morality becomes high quality naturally because of the unification of mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As opposed to teaching morality to children who have no unification of mind, they have no wisdom, they can't see. And so we have to make a bunch of rules. Yeah. You do this, and I'll give you this reward. You do that, and I'll punish you. Mm-hmm. And if I can't punish you, I'll get a God who will. And if we can't punish you now and you die before we get to punish you, guess what? Our God's going to come in there and he's going to kick you and lock you up and put you in hell because I want my revenge. Okay, so uh, we teach morality to children because they're not wise enough. But now we're developing wisdom that brings about unification of mind. And so our morality is naturally now going to be very high quality. Okay, so now let's look at, and so we've talked about the unification of mind and the morality in the sense of right speech, right action, and right livelihood. All right, let's go for the other four because this is the key. The first one is right view, and we'll talk a lot about right view and right noble view uh, as time goes on. But the first noble right view or the first right view that you had was that you could see enough dukkha that you wanted to get out of it. And so you get interested in Buddhism. You called me. That's right view. Let's find a way out of this dukkha. Let's start finding ways to where we can see these cow paths in our path. (laughs) Okay, yeah. All right. Now, the second one that I'm going to introduce to you is actually the most important, even though the foundation and the base and that the right view comes first, the skill that needs to be developed is sati, to remember. Mm -hmm. In other words, you can have the very, very best of skills, but if you don't remember to put those skills into play, they're, they're valueless. They're only, the skill is only useful if you remember to apply the skill. Mm-hmm. And so sati, the Buddha is really big on sati. Mm-hmm. Now that's the sati, the Pali word sati is translated into English as mindfulness. But that's the only place that you'll ever find the word mindfulness. It's a brand new word. Why use the word mindfulness when sati is a good enough word and it's actually got a definition? And nobody knows what mindfulness means. No, not really. <laughs> no. Well, I remember as a child, we had the state, the, the saying, mind your P's and Q's. Do you I know what mind. we mean by mind the P's and Q's? What? Can you say it again? Mind your P's and Q's. Don't forget them. Well, look at the letter Q, the lowercase Q and the lowercase P and their mirror opposites. Uh And so some kids will get them backwards. And so they'll put a P where a Q should be and a Q where a P should be. Uh Okay. But you have to mind your P's and Q's. So that you don't print out a P when you meant to use the letter Q. Okay. Okay, so this is where the word mindfulness comes from. It means mind or watch or see what you're doing. Mm -hmm. To remember to look Mm -hmm. so that you can see what you're doing. So this sati is a skill that needs to be developed. Because if we can't remember, then we won't get... uh, to be able to apply the other skills. Now, when we have the mind, uh, when sati comes, then we want to um, 
apply right effort. But let's stop for just a moment before we go any further and apply this to the practice of Anapanasati. All right. Right view then would be is good to practice Anapanasati and is actually not just good to practice Anapanasati, but it is better than being angry, uptight, frustrated, afraid, and feeling bad. Mm-hmm. If we practice sati, if we practice mindfulness, that means that we're going to start thinking about and paying attention to and start watching what the body is doing. And the best way to do that is with the breath. And so when we say that we're going to be mindfulness of breathing, that does not mean that I'm going to just pay attention to the breathing just a little bit with weak attention. We're going to make it very strong. Okay. Uh, An example is this puppy that's at my feet. When uh, uh, my friend went across the highway over there to see the neighbor about some business, the dog wanted to go over there with her. And the dog really, really wanted to go. Mm. We didn't want the dog to go, so I'm holding the dog. I'm petting her and I'm holding her and everything like that. But she keeps thinking about going and chasing after the housemate. If I don't mind that dog and hold her tight, she's going to run away. Uh Guess what? The mind does that, too. You have to not just uh, say, I'm going to watch the breathing because I can watch this dog and the dog's going to get up and go across the street. Uh I have to actually hold that dog. I have to take some action. I have to actually do something. And what I'm actually doing is, in fact, controlling the dog to preventing her from going across the street. This is Anapanasati, to control the breath. This is why the Buddha has the long, deep in-breath. A lot of people think that meditation is just watching the breath. But if you just watch the breath, that breath or the, the mind will just run right away wherever it wants to go. We have to actually hold the mind in place by placing it on the breath, by changing the way we breathe from the normal way of breathing into a structured way of breathing. That changes the mind also. Changes the mind also, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so this is a key element of Anapanasati is to take the effort that it takes to actually control the breathing. That's one's right effort. How do we do that? By remembering Sati on the in-breath to take a long, deep in-breath. And then Sati on the out-breath to take a long, deep out-breath. This breathing also energizes the body and helps eliminate all kinds of garbage. We'll talk a lot about this later, that in fact, the breathing is the, one of the most important qualities is get our breathing going, getting our mind fit for work. And so that's one aspect of right effort. The next part of right effort, which is also often missing with the, uh, the way that meditation is taught, but the Buddha has it very special. And that is to gladden the mind. To bring the mind out of the uh, wanting to go over across the street to actually getting the dog here at my feet to want to stay with me. And so not just grabbing and holding the dog, because if I hold it, it wants to escape. But if I pet it, if I love it, if I scratch him, if I hold him like that, and pay a whole lot of good attention to it, then the dog will be actually become interested in staying here. This is exactly what we mean then by gladdening the mind. Now, this gladdening the mind is a very, very key ingredient for one's right effort. The Buddha talks about two kinds of thought in Sutta number 19 in the Majjhima Nikaya. The name of the Sutta is two kinds of thought. What? Two kinds of thinking. There's um, two ways. I think I've read it. Is the Pali name of the Sutta the Vitaka Santana Sutta? Pardon? 
I don't remember the Pali name. I only remember it as uh, the English name is two kinds of thoughts. I could look it up, but it's Sutra number 19 in the Majjhima Nikaya. What are the two kinds of thoughts? One kind of thought is thoughts about wanting something we don't have, thoughts about something that we want to get rid of or we don't like, or some a job that needs to be done, some item that needs to be repaired, some sentence that needs to be finished, something undone that needs to be done, and the ignorance. So this is the second noble truth all over again. And that is, is that these are the thoughts then that are unwholesome. And so thoughts of, of um, uh, violence, thoughts of harming, thoughts of wanting things, thoughts of trying to get rid of something, these are all unwholesome thoughts. And what are wholesome thoughts? Anything that is not unwholesome, mm-hmm. which can be extraordinarily big, but in the beginning, we want to bring it down to just a few things. That in fact, I'll give you a list of two items. One is what's happening with the body and your senses right here, right now. That's wholesome. To be here now is wholesome. The other kind of thoughts that are worthy of thinking is thoughts of the Dhamma. That in fact, the Buddha Dhamma, one of the qualities of it is that it's wholesome. And so if you're mm-hmm. thinking of Dhamma, you're thinking wholesome thoughts. If you're thinking about what's happening right now, you're thinking wholesome thoughts. If you're thinking about what happened last week, that may not be wholesome at all. It may be dangerous to think about what happened last week. But for example, if, if something, if for example, in the present moment, um, thoughts of violence are occurring in my mind, what would I do in that moment? Like, turn the attention to the breath and the body and... Exactly mind. so. Right. Okay. So, the sequence of Anapanasati, actually, you probably have uh, heard that there are 16 steps to Anapanasati. Yes. All right. And that they are broken into four groups of four called quadrads. And that the four groups of four are according to the Satipatthana, the four foundations of mindfulness, Sati. The foundations of mindfulness are, number one, the body and the breath, feelings, the mind in the sense of the chitta, and we'll talk about chitta and chitta nupasana at great length as opposed to another part of the mind, the manu. But the chitta is more the primitive part of the mind that is closely associated with feelings. And then the fourth one is the content of the mind. What are we thinking? And that this is constantly changing. Mm -hmm. The Buddha says uh, in one of the suttas, the mind, oh monks, is fast. It is so fast that I don't even have an analogy for how fast it is. What does that mean? That means the mind is in constant turmoil. Some people call it monkey mind, jumping here, jumping there all the time. This rots, this comes up, that goes back down, and this one comes up. And so this is actually part of Anapanasati is to begin to deal with the contents of the mind. But we're going to deal with the contents of the mind in an an immediate sense and to see exactly that's what that is. It arose, it arose immediately, and it passes away immediately. Okay, that the mind is constantly changing, is constantly in turmoil, and those old thoughts immediately rot away and die. Mm -hmm. And the right thing to do is then to let them go. I have just covered step number 13, 14, 15, and 16 of Anapanasati. But let's get back down to the basics. Number one, the long, deep in-breath and the long, deep out-breath. By doing so, we begin to pay attention to the body, and by doing that, we experience the body, and that's step three of Anapanasati. Now, when I say step, I'm not talking about marching steps like an army. Hup, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. This is much more like a waltz or a tango, a dance, Mm -hmm. where you put the feet here all over the place, you know. 
And so this is what we're learning to do is we're learning to dance the tango of Anapanasati. We don't march through it. We pedal with it. We play with it. We do a little bit of this, a little bit of that, all back and forth. Okay, so sati comes. When sati arises, we say, okay, I'm going to take the right effort to do two things. One is step number one, to take a long, deep end breath. And then the second thing we're going to do is step 10 of Anapanasati, which is gladden the mind. This is back to two kinds of thoughts. We're going to actually change the content of the mind from unwholesome thoughts into wholesome thoughts. To brighten the mind, to gladden the mind, to bring it up, to be here now. In fact, going in the direction immediately, going in the direction of being satisfied. When this happens, when we talk ourselves into it, we talk ourselves out of the bad feelings we have into feeling good. This is where the sukha comes in. This is step number six of Anapanasati. Sukha is a skill to be developed. The skill of satisfaction. So when I remember with sati, I'm going to take a deep breath. I'm going to gladden the mind. And I'm going to become satisfied and comfortable. And by doing that, I become relaxed. Step four of Anapanasati. To relax. Ah. A nice, yep. relaxing sigh, a deep out-breath. <sighs> and I relax. Now, if I keep doing that over and over and over again because my sati is being developed, I remember often and keep coming back. Now I'm also practicing the skill of right effort. Uh-huh. And the right effort then will bring me into... Uh, having good thoughts which bring on good feelings and I keep doing this I know I can do it if I can do it one time I can do it again if I can do it again I can do it again and the old and so I'm doing it and then the old thought will come back and I'll say aha I see you and I throw that out and I come back and have good happy thoughts again And then I'll take another deep breath, and then the mind will wander away again. Never mind, come back, come back, keep coming back, and enjoy the coming back. Enjoy the fact that you're actually gaining some satisfaction in this practice. When that happens, eventually, and we're talking about for some very short order, that we develop this fourth skill, which is called right attitude. Now, this is the crown jewel. This is the big dude. When you can develop right attitude along with right noble view, right sati, and right effort, you bring those things together, and that's your samati. And that is what brings about the unification of mind. So let's look at this right attitude. Most of us start off with the attitude of uh, when we're born, we're completely dependent. Mommy changes our diaper, she feeds us, and we're little people. The furniture is for big people. Nothing fits for the child. The child is completely dependent and therefore a victim when it doesn't get uh, the things it depends upon, and it's helpless. And so we start off in the position of a victim. Later, we become even more victimized when we are told to do something like go learn your uh, ABCs, go do your homework, go clean up your room, go pick up your toys, right? And we're always the victim being told what to do. And we begin to learn all of this victimization as a form of our set of rules. Go do this, go do that, thou shalt do this, thou shalt do that. And we pick all of these rules up as a way of living based upon the fact that we're a victim. And so most of the rules are trying to avoid being caught out as a victim. That's our attitude. With Anapanasati, we're actually practicing and developing the skill of can do. I can do this. So that the first noble uh, knowledge that the Buddha says, the very first knowledge on the path is that no matter how much hindrance, how obstructed the mind is, 
I can clean it out and come back to this present moment. When we know for sure that we can do that, that's right attitude. That's the right knowledge. I can do it. This can be done. It's not a matter of no self and I and, and whatnot. We'll talk about anatta at a later time. But right now we're using conventional language in the sense of this can be done. I can do this. I'm successful. Now we're adding something new. Besides satisfaction, we're adding success. Mm -hmm. That success is actually the success of being able to do it. It's the winner, not the loser. You are no longer a victim. Now you're the champion. That's a feeling. And in the Pali, that feeling, is, uh, the word is pity. pity. Mm -hmm. Now, pity and sukha are the same thing, except that pity is uh, the full-blown, I did it, or I got it, or this, this can be done. Okay? So the example would be the football player in the uh, big league game, he makes a touchdown. What does the football player do when he makes the touchdown? He does he start crying? No. Does he lay down on the ground? No. Does he go to his boss and ask for a raise? <laughs> no. What does he do? He raises his hands in the air and goes, yay! Yeah. Huh? All right. And all of his buddies, they come and pile on and jump on him, and everybody's ecstatic for a second or two, right? Uh-huh. That's the champion. That's the win. I got it. Okay. The right attitude. We can do this. We got that touchdown. Immediately, immediately after that, what happens with the people, uh, the football players and the crowd? In fact, the crowd that, that like that team, when he gets a, um, a score, all the crowd jumps up and raises their hands and says, yay, wow. And what do they do after that? They sit down and they sigh. And they say, ah. uh-huh, they're satisfied now. So they go through a piti sukha uh, cycle. Another example of that piti sukha cycle is at New Year's. When they brought the ball, 10, 9, 8, 7, when he gets down to zero and it's uh, um, now the new year, what does everybody do? Do they just all walk away and go home, or do they start making a lot of noise and cheering and yay, whippy, New Year, bong, 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 you know, and all the horns blowing everything? What happens after that? Then they break out in song, mostly all Lang Syne, and everybody hugs and everybody feels comfortable. So that pity sequence. Pitti Sukha sequence happens at New Year's. And it happens when they make a touchdown. In fact, that whole sequence is exactly the reason why people go to football games. Mm -hmm. And it's exactly the reason why they go to the New Year's party. Yes. Right? For that Pitti and Sukha that's built right into Anapanasati. You don't have to go anywhere to get your Pitti and Sukha, you just manufacture it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so step five of Anapanasati is the sukha that we get through the success of knowing that we can do this because we keep practicing it over and over again. And so we gain the right attitude, the attitude of a winner, the attitude of satisfied. So pity and sukha have the following qualities. Success, satisfaction, contentment, safety, and security. We feel safe. We feel inv uh, invincible, not vulnerable. We feel uh, good. And so you could say that the pity sukha sequence actually is that the pity is when we feel really, really energized. We feel really on top of it. Well, guess how we're going to get that is through this deep breathing. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that deep breathing is going to help us feel really good on top of the whole show. So with the practice of Anapanasati, we're actually practicing the Eightfold Noble Path. Mm. That, eight, that uh, Anapanasati is the method of practicing the Eightfold Noble Path, and that the practice of Anapanasati brings us into this state of sukha, 
which is not suffering. Mm. So the whole goal of Anapanasati is that third noble truth. That's how tightly this stuff is all balled up together. It's all just one little teaching, Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda, through the practice of Anapanasati. And look how many of those 16 steps we've already covered. Now, number nine, we didn't talk about. There's others we didn't talk about. Let's stop and talk about uh, step number nine. Step number nine of Anapanasati means to experience the mind. Look at what you're doing. This is also the one that's closely referenced to right noble view. To have right noble view, you've got to look. You've got to investigate. You've got to interrogate. Is the mind filled with hindrance or is the mind free? Is the mind exalted? Is it tired? Is it up? Is it down? Is it sideways? Is it collected? Is it disjointed? Is it unified? Is it all broken up? This is the way that we practice step nine of Anapanasati, and all of these details are actually specified in the Satipatthana Sutta Mm -hmm. to experience the mind. And so actually we could say that uh and the the entire anapanasati sutta is structured and it's structured in the following way the buddha says that we practice anapanasati for the fulfillment of the seven excuse me the four foundations of mindfulness but we practice the four foundations of mindfulness for the fulfillment of the sambhojana the seven factors of enlightenment. If you look at the seven factors of enlightenment, they look very similar to the Eightfold Noble Path, except for one thing. In the Eightfold Noble Path, the skill of sati is to be developed. The right uh, effort is a skill to be developed. Right noble view is a skill to be developed, and right attitude is a skill to be developed. In the Sambhojana, the sati is unremitting. It's there. You got it. It's there. It comes, and it keeps coming back, and it keeps coming back. And you, the mind wanders away, and you come right back again. Okay? The second factor of the seven factors of enlightenment is unremitting investigation. Keep looking at what you're doing. Keep doing that step nine of Anapanasati over and over and over and over and over again. Keep watching, keep looking, keep seeing what's going on. And that's when the effort then becomes unremitting right effort is actually energetic. That we actually practice the Dhamma because I really like to do it. In the beginning, when students start practicing Anapanasati, they do it kind of, they've heard that it's good, they've been told that it's okay, they can see some evidence of it, and so we've got a little bit of knowledge right from the beginning. But after we start practicing, we say, hey, hot dog, this stuff's good stuff. I'm going to keep doing it. And so it becomes almost energizing, as well as an unremitting energy. Okay, and there's many ways that we can talk about that. One would be is is that you've got a friend who's angry, and you're going to have unremitting joy, and he gives unremitting anger, and you've got unremitting joy, and he's getting more unremitting anger, and then you're beginning to say, "I'm I'm here for you," and his anger begins to soften, and then more unremitting joy, more unremitting joy, and pretty soon he comes out of his anger. Most people don't have unremitting joy. Mm-hmm. And so the angry guy will take over. He's got more energy than you do. So unremitting pity, unremitting joy, unremitting confidence. This, this gives us also, now the next one is unremitting relaxation. Everything comes to be easy now. So these are the seven factors of enlightenment, and the seven factors of enlightenment is nothing but the Eightfold Noble Path when you've got the skills developed. And so that's why in the Satipatthana Sutra, it goes into great detail about the Eightfold Noble Path, and in the Anapanasati Sutra, it doesn't even mention the Eightfold Noble Path. Here it's talking about the seven factors of enlightenment because it's the fulfillment. We practice for the fulfillment of the Satipatthana 
will develop and fulfill the seven factors of enlightenment. And then why do we do the seven factors of enlightenment? We practice that for the fulfillment of the big deal, knowledge and, and deliverance. In other words, we begin now to see what's going on. We really do know what a cow pie is, and so now we can easily avoid it. We can set it down. We can drop our burden. We can see where the bondage is, and we can drop it. And so this is the actually fulfillment. This is why we would call this the enlightenment. And there's two kinds of enlightenment here. Just like in enlightenment, you use the word light. One way of using the word light is to turn on the, the, the light. The light of day. We, we can see because we everything is lit up. That's mm -hmm. knowledge. Mm -hmm. And then when we see the burden and we drop the burden, things are not heavy. Different kind of light now. First we become enlightened by waking up and then we become enlightened by dropping the load. And now we're light. So, uh -huh, okay, yeah, I get it. All right, so this is the practice of Anapanasati, and that it is closely wrapped up with the Eightfold Noble Path. And so these are the skills to be developed. Mm -hmm. And you should, when you start developing these skills, congratulate yourself that you can do that. That congratulations is the, unif is the um, uh, gladdening of the mind. Uh -huh. The winner. Pardon? That the gladdening of the mind is the, it's like the winner? Pardon? Yeah, you tell yourself the winner. Here's a way of thinking about it. You have spent, and everyone does, spent most of their childhood, all of their adult, uh, all their teenage years into adulthood, talking ourselves into feeling bad. You've got to go to university. Mm -hmm. You've got to do that paper. You got to do this. You got to do that. Right? All of these rules, all of this uh, stuff to do, and all of this critical kind of thinking. And what we're missing out on is the early nurturing. So basically, the gladdening of the mind is a way of nurturing ourselves. So, like I said, you talked yourself into feeling bad over all of these years with all the critical thinking. Now it's time to talk yourself into feeling good to gladden the mind, to nurture yourself, to pat yourself on the back and say, ah, I got that one. This is okay. I can do this. And so this is the attitude that we gain with correct practice is because we're successful at it. We know we're successful and we know we can keep practicing and become more successful. And so this is the basic practice of Anapanasati. Okay. But it's not one step at a time, and a lot of people think so. They think you've got to spend five years on step one and four years on step two and three years on step three, and eventually you'll get up to step 16. No, we're going to practice all 16 steps in one sitting. Okay. Not just in one sitting, in one minute. Mm. Mm. In one minute's time, we're going to get all of the packages. We don't, uh, for instance, we do not say, I'm going to go meditate, but I'm only going to meditate on the body. The mind, the feelings, and the mind's objects can stay in bed, and I'll practice body for a while. And then next week, I'll go and practice his feelings, and so the body can stay in the bed. The mind can stay in the bed, and I'm only going to work on feelings. We can't do that. No, because they are all together. Like. They have to be all integrated together. Exactly the same way as learning to drive a car. You have to learn to throttle, learn the steering, learn the, uh, the braking, learn the, uh, the gears. All of that stuff has to be learned and put together all at the same time. And we have to practice all those skills together. Can you imagine a driving school to where on the first lesson they taught you the accelerator? A week later, you go back for the second class and they teach you steering. The next class, they teach you uh, how to shift gears. And so now you're out tooling around the road, but they never taught you about brakes. 
<laughs> well, brakes are really advanced. We don't teach oh, you got to pay us extra and we'll teach you about brakes. <laughs> no. No. Don't work like that. No, we got to learn all of the stuff all and practice it all together at the same time. Mm-hmm. Which is uh, right now. So everything about the teaching of the Buddha has to do with right nowness. To bring the mind into the present moment so that we can put all of these factors together. Uh-huh. And the outcome then is that third noble truth of being free from dukkha, being satisfied, being content, and knowing that we're satisfied and content. And you can do that any time that you practice. In fact, this is the point is, is that you would be doing that every time you practice. Every time sati comes up, Within a half a minute or so, you should be in a state of uh, right um, attitude mm. and in the third noble truth, free mm. from suffering, over and over and over and over and over again. Okay, great. This is, this is how we practice. So you go start practicing that way and then call me in the next couple of days. And we will continue on to deepen the, your understanding of how to practice. But now I think you can see that the teachings of the Buddha is very deeply integrated. Mm-hmm. That, uh, that Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda, and the Four Noble Truths are the same thing. And the practice of the Four Noble Truths, the, uh, the Eightfold Noble Path, is in fact Anapanasati. But Anapanasati is deeply related to the seven factors of enlightenment through the four foundations of mindfulness. And everything gets very, very unified. It's a unified teaching. And yet many students of Buddhism, they see the list and they say, well, there's 16 of those and seven of those and eight of those and and 12 of them things and there's four of this and four of that and four of those things over there and threes of this and fives of those and oh, it's just so much, right? This is how we look at it. But in fact, it's not complicated at all that we can see how all of this stuff puts together. We can see, for instance, how the five aggregates work together. In fact, the five aggregates is nothing but a rephrase of the four foundations of mindfulness. But we look at it differently because now we're looking at anatta or no self. But we'll talk about that at a later time. Right now, we want to get down just the basic practice with the outcome of remembering to take a deep breath, relax, throw out those thoughts and bring in good, wholesome, happy thoughts and become satisfied. A good example of a good, happy, wholesome thought would be everything's going to be all right. No worries, mate. Life is beautiful. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Zippity-doo-dah, zippity-ay. Okay, all of these happy songs. You can start singing yourself happy songs. Allow yourself to be. And these not only are happy, they're nurturing. Mm -hmm. To bring um, an integration, a wholeness, a friendship. That if you're in fact not friends with yourself then you're divided. When you are close, deeply connected to yourself, you're, uni- you're integrated and you're friendly with yourself. You're okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is the basic introduction to the teaching of the Buddha. Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda, right now. In this very moment. Take a deep breath and relax. And throw those old hard thoughts out and have a happy thought right now. Talk yourself into feeling really good. Okay. Go practice that. Mm-hmm. So many people think that they should be practicing meditation, let us say, for a long period of time. But in fact, the mind gets tired. And so it's better to have frequent short sittings, Mm -hmm. like three, four times a day, 
rather than one sitting for a long time. But intentionally sit down and say, I'm right now for the next 10 minutes, I'm going to practice Anapanasati. I want to sit here and I'm going to breathe. I'm going to keep breathing for 10 minutes. I'm going to let myself be in a nice state of, of pleasure and homeostasis. And so within that 10 minutes, you can get all your worries out of your mind and get yourself into a really hunky-dory state. Everything survive, survive. Do that three, four times a day, and it'll begin to change your life. Mm -hmm. Yes. When you sit one time a day, and everybody works really hard at sitting on one time a day, and I say, hmm, that means that you're practicing one time a day to rid your mind of hindrances. But the other 23 hours a day, the mind is full-blown into hindrances. Which one's going to win? One hour a day or 23 hours a day and the old habit on top of that? Ah, right. The hindrances are going to win out. But if we keep practicing often, every time we remember, mm -hmm. uh, that's sati, to wake up and remember, I'm going to take a deep breath and I'm going to enjoy this moment. Mm-hmm. Don't have to suffer. All right, well, let's finish this off now. I think you've gotten something to go for. Yes, yes. All right, well, we'll see you in a couple of days then, right? Yes, right. Okay, well, I'll listen to you. I'll see what you're reporting in, and I look forward to having really happy conversation with you because this has been delightful. I really enjoyed our talk today. Me too, really. Thanks. Okay. We'll see you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.